This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 1st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Campaign finance reformers want a clean system of advocacy for candidates for public office, but attempting to comply with a Byzantine system of campaign finance laws leaves many would-be activists to decide that it might be better to stay silent. Two campaign finance attorneys on opposite sides of the political aisle speak with me today, Michael G. Adams, who typically represents Republicans, and Neil Reef, who typically represents Democrats. We spoke in April. Citizens United is several years old now, and we've had years of uh, some cases following on that, and most notably, I think Speech Now was one of the big cases that uh, dealt with uh, campaign spending or spending in elections. I don't even like campaign spending because it's not campaign spending in many cases. Uh, so when you guys who are two people who are on the opposite side of the aisle go in to deal with campaign finance issues of independent speakers, of uh, campaigns, of parties, and people who just want to have an influence on the electoral process, how is the environment different now from how it was in 2009? I, uh, I remember vividly the first few years I practiced in this area around the middle of the last decade. For the first few years, I would help a client make an ad, and then I would wait for my phone to ring, and I would chew my nails wondering if we'd committed a felony. Because in many states, if you sought to influence an election and you didn't use money in the increments that you had to or from the sources that you had to, if it was not personal money, if it was corporate money, if it was not money in increments of X and not more than X, with X being a small number usually, then technically if these things were happening and people were referring to a candidate in an ad that some bureaucrat could deem to be election speech and not just simply political speech, that's a felony in, in many states at that point. And so I used to chew my nails worrying about that. If I was giving people bad advice, they just wanted to win elections, or sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they just wanted to say things about politicians and get them to pay attention. That's when they pay attention is right before an election. Neil, you work with Democrats mostly, um, or exclusively? For the, yeah, let's just exclusively. Uh, so uh, it, it seems like the problems that you two have as people who work with uh, election lawyers are identical. Is that right? Absolutely. Hey, both everyone who has a political opinion wants to speak, and we all have to speak in the same system. So whether you're Republican or Democrat— uh, you work with the same rules. So if my client wants to use a 501c4 to attack Citizens United, for example, they, uh, they are under the same rules. And I get the same complaints about the law from my progressive clients that you probably get from your conservative clients. These laws sometimes are very difficult to work with, uh, regardless of which ideology you're talking from. I can remember uh, a group, I think it was a company, that wanted to support Bernie Sanders for president. And they, I think they put out a single uh, or something like that and, and basically said, look, uh, if you give Bernie some money and then tell us you did that, we're going to send you this thing for free. And we're horrified to learn that that is really, really illegal. <laughs> and, and I think there are a lot of people who... Uh, small companies or uh, individuals or a group of guys and a cigar box full of money, that's my favorite example, would love to influence an election and love to get involved in politics, which we hear a lot of people argue that we should be, we should be trying to get out there and uh, have your voice heard. 
but are cowed by this system of compliance that the government, the federal government, and a lot of state governments have set up. Absolutely. And, and I just kind of riff off what Mike said. So let's say we're, let's go back about 15 years, and I've been doing this for a very, very long time, more than I want to admit. Um, let's say before McCain-Feingold, we, had a, we were in a way different time in campaign finance. If people have a problem with this system, they, they really need to come back to, say, 2000, 2002, and understand the system we were in then. Because back then, we had what was called 527s. This was a whole different world, where groups were taking advantage of the tax code, and there were no disclosure requirements until 2000. So people unabashed issue advocacy ads. We had an express advocacy line. So what was technically legal then, and the lines we had to draw, and the effect, you know, I would have clients who, progressive clients, who wanted to come as close to that line, just like conservative clients. And I would read ads, and you would look at them, and you'd say, how is this not a campaign ad? And, and it was kind of offend my senses as just any, you know, anybody who lived in a legal system. And we would, you know, Mike and I would have to sit there and go, oh, my God. And it's so hard to tell back then because the standards were so iffy. They had different circuits with different standards. And at least when we had McCain-Feingold, whether you liked it or not, at least you had, as a lawyer, a simpler system to work with. You know, then you, the law was triggered when you just mentioned a candidate. Now, many people find that offensive, and obviously the courts have intervened since then. And because of McCain-Feingold, we've had the boomerang effect. So, Neil, your advice to a—let's uh, uh, let's go back to a, a bunch of guys who hang out at McDonald's on the weekends, <laughs> and they have a cigar box full of money, and they want to they pool that money, and they want to spend it— uh, to promote a candidate or to oppose a candidate, what do you tell those guys? I mean, what did you tell those guys? What would you have told those guys in 2001, Well, I'd probably 2002? give the same advice then and now, form a pack, um, especially now. It's, and it depends on how big that cigar box is, I suppose, <laughs> right? The small cigar box, there's no danger in forming a pack. But what was a problem 15 years ago was, let's say that wasn't a cigar box anymore. Let's say that was a large investment portfolio. And you have some wealthy people who wanted to associate with each other. Until speech now, there was no way for people to independently associate with each other. And I think that was the beauty of speech now, is that people could do that. So uh, if, if I recall correctly, and gentlemen, you're the experts here. Correct me if I'm wrong. What uh, Citizens United gave us was the fact that uh, you as an individual don't lose your rights uh, to speak independently in elections if you're doing so through the shell of either a corporation or a union. Is that about right? Yes. yes. Uh, Citizens United, correct. And then Speech Now said the burdens that were too burdensome for General Motors and Monsanto and the AFL-CIO are also too burdensome for five guys in a cigar box with some money in it. Fair enough, but let's be clear is, what is burden that, means. Sure. Because some people will say forming a pack is a burden. So it's not so much the pack formation well, as at, the burden. You are at the Cato Institute. Well, <laughs> I might, we might suggest that that is too sure, burdensome. Sure. No, almost, unfortunately, the courts don't agree yet or at this point. But the idea that people can't form an organization and speak together to expressly advocate the election or defeat of a candidate, that's what really was the gift of Citizens United, at least to those who individuals who wanted to do that. Well, it's Easter season. See, see it this way. Citizens United was John the Baptist. Speech Now was really the coming, right? Because that's the decision that people are actually utilizing. 
I saw a survey recently that of all the contributions to super PACs, only 0.5% are coming from publicly traded corporations. It's not the corporations themselves that are benefiting from these cases. It's individuals who are pooling their resources. Help me understand. There, there are still significant compliance burdens for well, people large and small who want to speak. Yeah. But, you know, Mike, you told me previously your advice to those guys with the cigar box full of money is go home. Don't do it. Yeah. And that's because why? Well, because uh, in order to be relevant, you need a lot of money. That's the, that's the first step. If you're just doing this to feel good about yourself by putting up one billboard, you're not going to influence the election. All you're doing is creating exposure for yourself. If you make an honest, innocent mistake, these laws are really not laws like laws against uh, robbery and so forth where there are bad things that are evil and so we prohibit them. Campaign finance is all about banning things that are actually really wrong, but we need to ban them for other reasons to support some regulatory regime. So it's very easy for people to make an innocent mistake if they misplace a check or if they fail to file the right notice on time because they spent an ad or money on an ad. Um, so you've got, you've got the exposure. Is it really worth it? You also have the question of what are your compliance costs going to be baked into this cake? How much are you going to have left for your actual advocacy? You need, probably need to hire a lawyer like Neil or me. You probably need to hire an accountant. Um, there's a great line in Citizens United that you shouldn't have to hire a campaign finance lawyer to engage in free speech. Well, they didn't actually strike down any of the, any of the compliance cost type of rules. There were two decisions in Citizens United. One was on speech itself. That was a five to four. But there was an eight to one decision baked in the cake in Roman four of that decision saying we're going to uphold the, the compliance regime uh, for, for disclosure. So. They said nice things about hiring a lawyer and not having to hire one. You don't have to hire a criminal defense lawyer anymore. We still got to hire a political compliance lawyer. <laughs> Absolutely. So well, first of all, let's not scare away potential clients. <laughs> <laughs> because look, I represent the gamut of speakers. I represent big speakers, and I represent a lot of little guys. And they value their speech quite a bit. Uh, the key for disclosure regime, from my perspective, is finding the right balance. Because there are some disclosure regimes out there that are relatively balanced um, for the little guy, and there are some disclosure regimes out there that are absolutely ridiculous. Case in point, for example, California campaign finance disclosure is just utterly, utterly ridiculous and complex. What are some of the things that are required well, of you? Okay, not only do the campaigns have to report all their donors on a 24-hour basis, but the donors themselves have to file their own reports. In many cases, under some new rules there, the donors of the donors, even out-of-state donors to out-of-state donors, have to file reports. It's, it's just unbelievable. I just had a scenario where a, a, an out-of-state PAC gave to an in-state PAC, not knowing that they had to file reports. Then they found out that 10 of their donors, and this is a state on the other side of the country, also triggered disclosure requirements. It was a pretty awful situation. Absolute overkill. So, look, personally, I, don't, I tell my clients and my philosophy is don't fear disclosure, uh, but disclosure has to have a purpose, and campaign finance regulation has to have a rational purpose. And I think trying to find those balances is really kind of the difficult part of this process. You know, a lot of the a lot of the rules were set up to sort of, especially at the state level. Both Neil and I, our, our firms, do a lot of state work as well as federal. And a lot of these state rules were set up specifically to try to shut out the quote unquote outside money, uh, the quote unquote big money, to influence governors' races and and so forth. And so when these federal court decisions came in and had the effect of invalidating all of these state rules. What they had to do, these legislatures, to try to punish people like our clients is go in and pass a bunch of new rules. So what you see now is donor disclosure on the face of the advertisement. 
in uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Alaska, a few other states, you actually have Rhode Island, you have to put the names of the top so many donors on the screen. Sometimes their addresses. It's a little, a little spooky. Well, it, and it, it's also weird. ruins your ad. Uh, yeah, that's, that was going to be my next question: is is to what extent does disclosure as a regime, maybe set up in particular ways, how often does that actually impinge upon the import of the communication itself? Well, in Massachusetts, for example, if you want to run an issue ad naming a candidate uh, within, I believe it's forty-five days of the election, you have to have an on. Uh, on screen, a person reading a script to the camera. It's 46 words long, this disclaimer about non-coordination and the donors and this and that. So they're making you identify what you look like and sound like if you want to say something about a politician. You have to go in front of the camera and you have to read this long script. I thought pretty fast. I can only get 46 words down to seven seconds. Well, that's a quarter of your 30-second ad. So if you do a million bucks of ads, Quarter million is just compliance costs for we, that. We've had alone. clients who wanted to run 15-second ads and didn't mm-hmm. do them because the disclaimer was seven seconds of the 15-second ad. Yeah. So there, you know, the, def- the law of, and from economics, the law of declining marginal utility certainly applies in terms of disclosure on advertising. Uh, look, there has got to be some level of disclosure, um, but some of these states have had overkill on this. I know you're shrugging. Once again, you know, you're at the Cato Institute. I understand. So, well, you, you invited a wolf <laughs> into the sheep's uh, bed, so... Uh, there you go. So, I, I mean, let's talk about super PACs a little bit. The, the Speech Now was a case that followed on Citizens United. Um, uh, avid listeners of the Cato Daily Podcast will note a recent episode with Steve Simpson, who uh, argued the case of uh, speechnow.org on behalf of, of, I believe, Ed Crane was one of the plaintiffs, former president of the Cato Institute, in that. So, that was essentially... Uh, created the super PAC, which is a, arguably a very low burden, relatively speaking, for some guys to get together and speak publicly on issues that they care about. Um, what is the, what, are, what do you have to do to have a super PAC and spend money in an election? I set them up every day, so I can pretty much walk you through it. It's actually much easier to set up and run a super PAC than it is a nonprofit like a 501c4. They're much less regulated. If you can handle the public disclosure aspects of being a C4, it is very easy to set one up. It takes five minutes. Basically, all you need to do is file one piece of paper with the, with the IRS telling them to get a taxpayer ID number because you don't want to run this money through a personal account, and register with the Federal Election Commission and follow their regular reporting regime. That's pretty much it. Uh, 501c4s actually have, a, I know people talk about wanting to use 501c4s and they're a much better vehicle, especially if you want to have more anonymous speech, but subjecting yourself to a lot more IRS regulation and a lot more uh, corporate work to be a C4. And perhaps some delays in getting your paperwork Absolutely. approved, as we learned recently. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, <laughs> frankly, setting up a, 50, uh, setting up a PAC, a super PAC, is actually quite easy to do. All right. Relatively speaking, at least from my perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I think at the federal level, it's great because Congress hasn't amended the code since McCain-Feingold in 2002. So they haven't. There's no been. There's been no chance for Congress to get revenge on super PACs. There's been no chance for them to change the rules, make them harder. We have the same reporting regime we had before Citizens United and Speech Now, which was frankly not that complicated because there was very little independent advocacy through PACs at that point. Because to have a PAC, you had to have five thousand dollar limits of personal money only. There just wasn't much of a 
a place for super PACs in that environment. All the money raised in those ways just went to candidate support directly. What limits what super PACs can say? Is there anything that they can't say? No. I mean, in terms of campaign finance regulation, no, and that's the beauty of it. So going back, uh, when I said this made my life as an attorney easier, back in the you know, 2000, you had to worry about what lines you were crossing for multiple reasons. One, you had a, if you had a 501c organization, did this make their primary purpose political? So were you putting their tax status at risk? Then for an organization that was a 527, which could do political work under the IRS rules, were they crossing into being a PAC? So at what point did you have to stop your speech? So once you get over the burden of two things, one, not worrying about whether your donation is being disclosed publicly, and two, the technical burdens of setting up a PAC, which at least from my perspective isn't difficult, this is a great world now with, if, with disclosure, with unlimited speech. So there's, it's anything goes. All right. So for individuals, uh, if, if I'm Oprah Winfrey and I'm spending money not through my corporation, Harpo, I can spend an unlimited amount of money on pretty much anything. Well, that's actually been true for 40 years. Um, what's different now is that Oprah can work with David Letterman or whoever else she wants, and they can join forces and resources in a way that had been prohibited before. And they can brand that communication. They don't have to say paid for by David Letterman and Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. They can call it Citizens for Better America, whatever they want to call it. They can brand that. And people want to find out who gave to it. They can go find the information. So one, one of the issues with uh, super PACs is coordination. And that's, that's the big key word for uh, super PACs. There ha there's a line there. And it, it does there not is. even... It's, not, <laughs> it's in, murky. In theory, there's yes. a line there. But it's, it's uh, as you guys both referenced, it's not really clear where that line is or what you can say or, um, you know, what are the, what the nature of conversations that you can have with people uh, before you cross that line. So for a super PAC that wants to support a candidate, uh, there are, seem to be, there have to be some specific pitfalls uh, associated with spending that money. Absolutely. And I break, Do you have any yeah. examples of that in your well, own work? Well, I'll, I'll give some general concepts of sure. things that are challenging. So there, there, I'm going to break this into two parts, because there really are two parts to this coordination. I'm going to call it a problem, but the coordination issues. So there's the actual creation of the super PAC, which has become very, was very controversial, especially in the 2016 presidential election. Then there's the actual execution of the communications themselves. I would say that the latter is much easier to navigate than the former. Because in terms of the communication itself, you have to make sure that you don't talk about those communications with the candidate or party committee, and that you're not using information, non-public information from those candidates, and you're not repub republicizing those candidates' communications. So from a legal management perspective, that part's pretty easy, because you can explain to your client, here are the rules, here's how you stay independent. What has become more challenging, I think, as a practical matter, and I think this is where it's going to get really controversial. The FEC has a lot of cases before on these kinds of issues, and even states have started to get into this, is the kind of organic creation of super PACs. As we've seen, a lot of these PACs, it's not just about Oprah and David deciding to get together. It's the former campaign manager who 
represented this candidate last cycle or the top consultant who's deciding to create these super PACs. So people who have some institutional knowledge of how a candidate would want to run, right. the issues that candidate would want to focus on, perhaps the broad strokes of internal polling that, right. that the candidate had done. Right. And all the commission has in place, and I don't think they really had the ability or really foresaw a lot of the challenges that were going to come. They do have this one rule about former employees for 120 days can't participate in the creation of an ad. But that's really all the Federal Election Commission's rules say to this issue, if we're just sticking to the federal side. There's so many other little nuancy issues, and I'll let Mike not steal all the time here, talk about it with regards to the creation that are very challenging for regulators. Yeah, states' rules are a complete mishmash. They don't have the clarity that the FEC at least has, has given us through the regulatory process. I think you have a couple of problems. One is not just legal standard, but the uh, the public misconception of coordination being banned. Coordination is a, 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 it's one word description of this large body of law that we're trying to deal with. Actual coordination isn't always prohibited. You can have coordination of earned media, right? The campaign can call a friend and say, hey, you know, uh, this press release would be great coming from you. There's no money involved in this. People think that's illegal. They think any coordination between the candidate. I'll give you a, a personal example. Several years ago, a complaint was filed against me and one of my best friends um, because I was working on an independent expenditure in a race, and my friend was working as campaign manager in, in the campaign that we were trying to help. And someone dug up tweets that were years old where we had tweeted each other. And then they dug up that we had been roommates at one time. And then they filed a complaint that, oh, these guys are coordinating. Look, they're friends. They've been talking to each other. The standard is not that you can't talk to people. This is not a police state. You're allowed to talk to people. You just can't share insider information. I mean, Non-public information. I've had right? scenarios where husbands and wives were on the other side of independent spending in campaigns. And they've asked me, seriously, yeah. should we move out? <laughs> Things like that. I get that question more often than you think. That so. seems troublesome. It is. <laughs> but so for the bottom line here, final analysis here seems to be that the world of independent speakers outside of campaigns uh, is much better than it was, but there are still some pitfalls that uh, could be very costly if you you screw up. Absolutely. The war hasn't really been won for the hearts of manja on this. You have the government that's being dragged and kicking and screaming into allowing free speech, but your average legislator in your average state still hates all of this stuff. They still feel, and it, you can kind of sympathize because in your average race, your candidate is a spectator in his or her own race sometimes. If they have small contribution limits, they have restrictions on the sources they can race from, and then the super PAC comes to town and blows it up, you can see why there would be this resentment of this regime. The solution is to raise the limits. The solution is not to stamp out the free speech. I was about to ask, it, it seems like the way, because I can't imagine that a lot of candidates love the existence of super PACs, even, even super PACs that are trying to help them in some cases. Oh, absolutely. And remember, going back to McCain-Feingold, I mean, the, the general consensus was the reason they issued, they outlawed issue ads, which were the, were the ads of the time was because the members of Congress hated issue ads. I believe they're Sham issue yes. is the term, <laughs> the proper yes. term. That's, Fair enough. I was trying to be kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, that's, but that was always like the the, uh, the argument offered by people like Al Franken was that these aren't really issue ads. And even from a fairly distant perspective, you can say, yeah, they're clearly trying to accomplish one thing, but they can't say certain things in the ad. Right. And I think that's why I currently like the current system. Let's Let's get away from this kind of bizarre system where you're basically saying what you want to say, but you can't actually say it. 
So from my perspective, this is my own personal philosophy here. <laughs> so um, not the Cato per se, but I try to teach my clients to embrace disclosure because once you embrace disclosure, the sky's the limit. And that's, I think, the system we should be in, from especially at least from an independent perspective. Well, you know, one more misconception I'd love to address is this notion that these decisions led to dark money in the system. There's absolutely no relationship. And again, the Supreme Court ruled eight to one in favor of, of disclosure requirements. Um, this, the one call I hate getting is the guys with the cigar box and me telling them, guys, it may not be worth it. The second call I hate getting is when I get a call from someone that says, yeah, I want a super PAC that doesn't disclose its donors. I want one of those things. I get that all the time. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Sorry, I can't help That's you. That's not how it works. There actually yeah. is a robust disclosure regime in place. All right. So, um, and I'm imagining a, a set of circumstances where a candidate has... Uh, there's a super PAC run by idiots uh, who supports this candidate and says, you know what, this, let's say he's a Republican, this guy's anti-abortion, so let's go and run a bunch of ads in this moderately Democratic district that this congressman has somehow gotten as a Republican. Let's run a bunch of ads focusing on how, how, how pro, uh, anti-abortion this guy is. Well, the candidate, of course, logically seeking to downplay that part of his uh, set of uh, views might be really, really upset. This is exactly what the Buckley court said is why we need to protect the speech. So going back to 1976, when they first struck down independent expenditures, one of the key principles of the court's decision was, from the First Amendment perspective, that the candidate could not control the message. So you've got to take the good with the bad. But it seems like the logical response from candidates, or particularly incumbents, is, as you said, Mike, raise the contribution limits and try to sop up all this money, because the, can the candidates themselves are still limited to how much money they can uh, collect from individuals. But if in that exit, if there's somebody who wants to give more, there's a super PAC around the corner who might not be quite as on message as the candidate prefers. Does anyone actually think that you can walk up to President Barack Obama, give him a check for $2,701 and corrupt him. He's like, oh, yeah, thanks. Okay, I'll do whatever you want. That doesn't actually happen in, in real life. These limits are artificially low. They're arbitrary. They're set at, at amounts that don't actually reflect what it would take to actually make a president or a member of Congress risk their, not just their job, but their freedom and do something against the law. They're ridiculous. And I'll just add another layer to that, because as you, as you know, Caleb, my, one of my big passions is political party committees, and so is Mike's. So it isn't just about candidates. I think the system right now, I mean, as much as we've been kind of saying great things about independent spending, let's look at the other side of the coin of the American political system right now. I think to, for all the great things we're saying about independent spending, it's put the system out of whack. Um, so we do need to figure out how to balance the system better, not by regulating out the speech, but empowering the other side of the speech. I'm um, talking about candidates, as, as Mike said, also party committees. Party committees are incredibly overregulated. We have regulated state and local party committees, for example, out of—we are regulating them out of business. And in my opinion, it's one of the reasons—one of the several reasons that American politics has become so polarized. Does that uh, disproportionately harm third parties? Probably. They can't even get off the ground, the regulations. If we're talking about regulations— so the, I green, represent, the Green Party, the Libertarian yeah. Party has a, has a more difficult yeah, time. I complying. represent state party committees, Democratic state party committees. And I can tell you, almost to a party, they struggle every day with their compliance burdens. And I may have kind of been rolling my eyes when we talked about the little guy in the cigar box, but the compliance burdens of party committees is real and it's serious. Plus the ballot access and everything else they're having to deal with. Absolutely. Yeah. The way super PACs function with the no coordination, what's the impact 
Uh, I'll start with you, Neil. What's the impact on the messages that come out? Most of the organizations that have taken the trouble to set up soup PACs, they seem to be a little more ideological to one side or the other. So people are saying, I'm not a political scientist here, but the, the literature that I've read on this issue is that to the extent more, more of the independent messaging is a little more ideological than centrist. So I suppose a lot of people have said um, this has created also a little more polarization because of those communications. But look, those who willing—I don't think that would have changed either way, because those who were doing issue ads were coming from the same ideological points. So I don't think that really makes a difference. Like single-issue people. Right, single-issue people, exactly. Mike? You know, I think uh, everyone seems to think that campaigns are too negative, and people tend to be against negative ads and dislike them. And they, they work, so they're still utilized, but people think they don't like them and, and, and uh, turn the volume down or whatever. But the fact is, this regime that we have in place makes campaigns more negative. If my client could just write a big check to a candidate for office, I, my client would go do that. It, it, easy. Why have to set up a pack? Why have to hire a separate uh, creative developer and crew and everything else? Just write the check. Uh, but with these limits in place, the source and, and amount restrictions on candidates, that money's going to go somewhere else. And then you add the coordination rules. My client sets up this separate pack, and they can't go talk to the candidate and say, hey, you want to be in our ad? You want to walk down the street and say things about what you want to do, and we'll shoot footage and we'll put it on screen. That's that's a crime. It's it's a felony. That's coordination. It's seen as an in-kind contribution to the campaign that would exceed the allowable limits. So what's that mean? So if you're doing your independent speech, all you can really do is negative ads. You can shoot those. You can cut those in a studio. So in order to prevent coordination, you attack the opponent. Right. You can't coordinate with the candidate. You have one option left, which is to shoot which is to cut an ad in the studio with no footage of the candidate, so it's going to have to be a negative ad. Well, there, there, there have been ways around that. So uh, there have been very creative ways for people to get the necessary footage that has been actually found to be legal. Mm -hmm. um, I think the term they call is McConnelling is the mm -hmm. favorite term that people <laughs> yes, use. In I remember the, from, the vernacular. from the Daily Show. Um, yes. So candidates put all kinds of very high-quality resolution YouTube videos out there and pictures on their websites. Um, the FEC has not come, seen eye to eye on exactly the legal implications of that. But it's, it's, it's a little more challenging, but I think people aren't driven as much by what's available because they've got their idea of what they want to say and how they want to say it. Are the rules clear for independent speakers? Well, at the federal level, what you're hoping on in, in a case like this is they haven't, cut, they haven't cracked down on it yet. At the state level, there's no rules, period. You don't have rulemakings like at the federal level. So typically, the closest thing you have to a rule is a statute that just lays out a general standard, but no one knows what it means. The rules are clear in some ways and not very clear in a lot of other ways. And as Mike said, we do a lot of state work. And this, the paradigm of regulation at the state level is just unbelievable. From states like California, who have actually four pages definition of coordination to many, most states, which have none. And what do you tell a client when there's no regulations? And that's, you know, there's a beauty to not having regulation, but also from a First Amendment perspective, knowing where your line is both in terms of content and your conduct, is really important for the First Amendment speaker. Michael G. Adams is a partner at Chalmers, Pack, Birch, and Adams. Neil Reef is a member at Sandler, Reef, Lamb, Rosenstein, and Birkenstock. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. Send comments and questions to cbrown at cato.org. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.